Our scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and then 21 through 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. Thanks, Susan. Uh, Good morning. My name is Jonathan Winfrey. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer. Uh, Usually not up in this... uh, current time in the service, so if you've been coming for a while and wondering what I'm doing in this role, occasionally I fill in uh, for the um, senior pastor, Drew, who's out of town today. It's great to see all of you here as we're continuing to walk through the Old Testament. We're only on uh, page, well, it's three in my Bible. Uh, Eventually, we'll get to the end. Uh, It's going to be a long road, but it's going to be a good road. Uh, In your worship folder, you should see on one side the passage that Susan just read, and then on the flip side there, you'll see the outline uh, that we're going to be walking through this morning as we think about this idea of exile, uh, along with some others. But as as we come to the end of Genesis chapter 3, let me just review for a moment if If you've not been here the last couple of weeks, this is the third week we're in Genesis 3. Uh, In the last two weeks, what we've done is focused on sin and its result in the fall of man. Uh, The essence of sin is really to say, uh, God, not your will, but mine be done, right? Uh, And as a result, we experience brokenness, we experience destruction in the world physically, emotionally, socially, ecologically, spiritually, a whole host of things. And all of it occurs, as we've seen, in a posture of hiding, right? Uh, fearing that we'll be found out for who we really are, as Adam and Eve do uh, in chapter 3. And then there's this curse that God begins in verse 14, goes all the way to verse 19, and we see that throughout our daily lives, even up to today, 
whether it's in work, whether it's in childbearing, uh, whether it's just in the, the overall curse of the world is not working as it should. Things are not right. right? Things do not work right. Uh, last week, Drew explained the difference between gospel Christianity and, um, well, everything else, <laughs> for that matter. Crafting fig leaves and coverings for ourselves is how we try to build records and reputations of righteousness because at the end of the day, we realize we're naked, right? But it never quite works. At least it doesn't work for me. Now, the leaves are always falling off. They're shifting. Every once in a while you get a draft. Good, I was hoping someone would catch that. It's exhausting, isn't it, right? I mean, it is exhausting. And he talked about that. That's the sin underneath every sin. But also, last week we saw God graciously coming to clothe and cover Adam and Eve even after they sin. And of course, he got those skins, we can only assume, from the uh, innocent animal, uh, the innocent in place of the guilty. And so we get the gospel, we get a picture of the gospel, a hint of the gospel, even in the first couple of chapters of the Bible. But sin always has consequences. And the final verses of Genesis 3 teach us that. The consequence is a state of alienation. Lots of problems flow out of the state in which we're born, according to the Scriptures. And this passage has a lot to teach us about that state. Remember, so much of what we read in the first three chapters of the Bible really does help explain what it means to be a human and why the world works the way it does or doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. So look at the outline there, and I I just want to walk you through it briefly and summarize some things before we get into it. But what you'll see there uh, is first we're going to talk about reaching. That is, we were designed for life in the garden, and yet because of sin we find ourselves reaching back to create sources of life or find sources of life to have our own paradise. And yet, if we're honest, they they never really satisfy our longings. Why is that? And what does the passage teach us about our design and the consequences of our sin? Uh, And so we're reaching to get back into the garden, but we're apart from God. We're trying to do it independent of Him. As a result of that, we find ourselves wandering. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and consigned to a life of exile and wandering. And what, what you see is they're exiles and we're exiles. So how do we learn from that? What's it mean to, even as a Christian, wander in faith? And then lastly, you can't return into the garden. You can't get to the tree of life unless you deal with one thing, and that's the sword. So what do we do with that? Uh, And that's kind of where we're going. So let's begin with reaching this morning. I want to read to you a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis from a book called uh, Mere Christianity. If you've not had a chance to pick up, particularly if you're here and you're not sure if you're a Christian or maybe you're considering Christianity, uh, it's a great book to read as you explore those things. But let me read this to you. Lewis says this, Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that what they would know that they do want, and want acutely, that is, sharply, right, significantly, something that cannot be had in this world. 
There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise, do they? The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. Now, I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and the scenery may have been excellent, but something has evaded us. And so we reach. Look at verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat. It was the first reach that created this mess, right? Eve took, she reached for that fruit, she took a bite, she gave it to her husband, he also ate, their eyes were opened, they realized they were naked, and the entire thing unravels before them. But in order to spare us from an eternity of living in a broken world, because if you eat from the tree of life, what do you get? You get life, endless life. But in order to prevent us from an eternity of endless living in a broken world, God prevents Adam and Eve from taking of the tree, and more on that in a few minutes. So I want to explore two things. First, why we reach, and then how we reach. Okay? First, why? Well, again, going back to what C.S. Lewis said, I think it's because we know that something is missing. Something's not right. There's got to be more. Right? Certainly there's more. Think about this. Have, Have you ever thought, and maybe you haven't, But have you ever thought about why a sunset at the beach or overlooking a stunning vista like a mountain valley is so awe-inspiring and powerful? I mean, maybe maybe you look at it and you, you see everything that's wrong with the picture. Maybe you look at it and go, gosh, I wish I could just live here, right? That's often what I experience, not at the beach because I hate sand, but in the mountains, right? When I'm, when I'm overlooking this mountain valley or when I'm looking up, at this mountain vista with all these peaks. It is absolutely gorgeous. A friend of mine told me recently that while he and his wife were enjoying a beautiful setting like this, and I think it may have actually been a sunrise at the beach, his wife remarked, wow, if this is so amazing to me now, imagine what it must have been like before the fall. And I'd never thought about that. I was really struck by that. She was commenting on just how gorgeous and beautiful we experience the world to be, and yet something in us realizes, gosh, this isn't right. There's got to be more. So can you imagine what a sunrise and a sunset were like before sin? And I think part of the reason that these things, these experiences, these, these views resonate so deeply with us is they're communicating something to us about ourselves, And that's this, we were designed to live in a garden. We were designed to live in a paradise. This world is not where we belong, it is not our home. And maybe you can relate, just when we begin to revel in the scene, as its beauty begins to overwhelm us, we're overcome with joy and wonder and worship, we realize it's not the garden. 
Okay, to give you an example, uh, this past summer, my family and I had the opportunity to go to Grandfather Mountain, uh, and we're uh, just parked on the side of the Blue Ridge Parkway. They have all these little parking uh, uh, spots for you, and you can just start walking up a trail, just random trail. Absolutely amazing. Cell phones don't work. It's awesome, right? But so we're walking along, and it's a beautiful thing. There's nobody, and all you can hear is it had been raining, so you hear sort of the, 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 um, the creeks uh, going by, and, you know, birds are chirping and just rustling in the leaves and all this kind of stuff. And we come upon this outcropping of these big rocks, and there's graffiti all over the rocks, right? You know, Joe was here, right? Bill loves Sue, or there was some profanity, too. And, ugh, you know? I mean, it just completely ruins the scene. Here you are in this gorgeous place. And you're starting to think, wow, I mean, this is, this is what it must have been like. This is what I was created for. Ugh. Nope. The world's still falling. People are still selfish. That rock doesn't belong to them. But they took it upon themselves to mark it, Right? And so I end up with an unfulfilled desire, and so I've got to reach for, I'm going for that experience in that moment, doesn't fulfill me, it fails me, I've got to reach for something else. Again, let me read you something from C.S. Lewis. Creatures are not born with desires, he says, unless satisfaction for those desires exists. You hear that? If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to suggest the real thing. They are, I love this. I wish I could write like this. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to point others to do the same, he says. So that's why, but how? How do we reach? We reach for things to try and bring paradise back to us, to recreate it, so to speak. We want back into the garden Because we know there's a true country, there's a better country out there beyond us that we haven't experienced yet. And our design tells us we belong there. And so we reach. We have these longings, we're trying to fulfill them, but feeling that tension leads us to often fulfill them with temporary sources. And that's the reaching. So let me give you a couple of things. We reach for power and influence, because something in us says we're supposed to rule and oversee, and so our garden, our paradise, becomes a state of being well-respected and feared and obeyed and known and influential. We find, we find life there. We find a paradise there. And when somebody comes in and wrecks that or destroys that or threatens that, we don't react very well. We reach for normalcy and security and predictability because something in us desires rhythm and routine. We were built for that. So our garden paradise becomes a steady income from a steady job, 
a healthy family and retirement savings and reaching for ability to ensure that nothing too terribly bad happens to us. From my own life, I reach for routine and schedule. That is my garden, my paradise. If my rhythm and routine stay regular, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you that enjoy this, find security in that too. But not only that, we reach for significance because something in us says we have more dignity than ants or snails, right? Our pursuit of significance is governed by our working. The more we work, the closer we are to getting into that garden, to getting into that state of paradise. We work to get significant rather than our working out of our significance. Adam had the ladder from God in the garden. He was given a mission. He was dignified as the image of God, and God put him to work. But what's happened as a result of the curse and sin is that now we work in order to gain significance. At the end of the day, our goal is to make a perfect world, but without God. To create paradise independent of God. Think of all the ways our culture has tried and is trying and will continue to try to find life and joy and peace and happiness. How it tries to conquer death. How it tries to extend life. Or better yet, how it simply fixates on this life and this world. Because humanity is convinced that it can live and love and survive without God himself. And so my question is, what are you reaching for? What are you looking to to help you experience? Or what are you looking to to help create a sense of having arrived, having, been, having come to a paradise or a garden or a sense of peace apart from God? We find ourselves reaching for things that won't satisfy the longing for our true country Because we are bearing the consequence of sin, and that is alienation. We went back into the garden, and yet we're separated. And so we have this life characterized by a wandering. Look there. The result of sin, in the outline, that is, look there in the outline. The result of sin is exile. What's an exile? Adam and Eve, as a result of sin, were alienated, separated from God. We saw it in the call to worship from Isaiah 59. Your sins have made a separation between you and God. Your sins. You hear that? Our fault. Our problem. And as a result, we're exiled. Well, an exile is this. Listen to this uh, definition. A person who has been banished from a native place and is now living and wandering in foreign parts or places. And this is an important concept in the Bible. Because it's underscoring the tension in which we live. We know we're not home. And we live with this constant sense of loss, longing, being displaced, dislocated. And if you don't, it's because you've been reaching so effectively that you've created a paradise where you're no longer feeling a sense of exile, loss, longing, dislocation. Because we don't want to live with the tension. It doesn't feel good. It's hard. Well, there's two effects of living as exiles that I want to mention. The first is exile and sin, and then exile and faith. And if you're not a Christian, or you're new to Christianity or the church, the first one I hope is going to make sense of the fall's impact on humanity's relationship to God. The second effect, particularly for those 
of you who consider yourselves Christians is that being in exile means that you have to, you have to wander by faith, right? We have no other choice. So first, exile and sin. The idea of being separated and alienated from God and thus being consigned to wander as a result of sin and the way of God being, or the way to God, rather, being guarded or protected is all throughout the Bible from this point on, right? Isaiah 59, it reminds everyone who reads it, prophet says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. That's where you begin, right? When you're born, that's where you begin, because you're born in Adam. Sin always separates. It always isolates. That's what it did for Adam and Eve, and they were kicked out of the garden. In every relationship, as human beings are made in the image of God, we, we, we experience separation and isolation when we sin. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that we experience exile whenever we are bitter or cross or somehow unreconciled to another person. You're, you're experiencing a mini version of exile because you were created for wholeness in relationships, not for them to be separated or broken. And that brokenness is an exile of sorts. Now, some examples Because we're in exile from the presence of God, and access to him is carefully protected. So, later on, when the nation of Israel is at the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, or Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai, what does God say about him on top of the mountain and the people? He says, you may not even come up and touch the mountain. Why? Because you'll die. Why? Because it's a holy place, because it's where I am. And you're not holy. And holiness cannot bear with impurity and sin and wickedness. In the tabernacle, uh, when God gave the nation of Israel the instructions regarding it, it was to have an, an outer court area, and then it was to have this curtain. And inside the curtain was the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. It was where God rested his feet on the earth. It was where his presence was, and yet there was this curtain separating the people, the priests, and uh, God, because God's holy, and it was guarded. You couldn't just walk in there anytime you wanted. When Uzzah reaches his hand out to grab the ark in Second Samuel, He struck dead on the spot. Why? Because you can't just approach God any old way you want. As a result, going all the way back to Genesis 3, as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, we're exiled, we're separated, we're alienated, and God wanted to make that very clear throughout redemptive history. If you look at the assurance of pardon, uh, Paul says that Jesus has, has uh, go to the, in the worship folder here. Paul says that Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That was a real place. That was in the temple in Jerusalem. It was a wall separating Gentiles and Jews. And there were actually signs that archaeologists have discovered that say 
They threatened death to Gentiles who entered the holy place, and even for the Jews. The high priest entered the Holy of Holies once a year with a rope tied around his ankle just in case he did something wrong. They would pull him out if he died because how no one would dare go into or even close to the Holy of Holies because human beings cannot approach God. He's separate. Our sins have alienated us, have separated us, and we're now exiles. For the Christian... However, the sense of being in exile, a wanderer longing to return home doesn't go away. It's still there, even if your faith is in Jesus Christ. Christians are so-called resident aliens. We hold green cards, if you will, but this isn't our homeland. Listen to Hebrews 11, verse 13. The writer says this, These... He's specifically referring to Abraham and Sarah. These died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's wandering by faith. If you're here and you consider yourself a Christian, these verses describe you too. Not just Abraham and Sarah, you and me. Wandering in faith is a life of living in the tension between what you have now, that is, the promises of God in Christ, and what you will have in the future, the better country, the paradise, the garden we were designed for. A Christian is in the world, valuing and contributing and building it, but also not of the world, not defined by it, not identified with it, not letting it dictate the rules. And so settling and living and working as an exile requires skill and wisdom, no doubt but also extraordinary faith. Again, we owe this state of exile to our sin. It's our fault that we are in the wandering position, that we have to live in this tension. And so the obvious question is, how do you ever get back home? Is it possible? Do we get to return? Are we consigned to a life of hopeless reaching and aimless wandering? And that brings us to the third point of returning. How do you return? If it's something we've been designed for and yet we find ourselves reaching and living these lives of wandering and exile, how do you return to the original place, the place you were designed for, the state of paradise? Well, even though verse 21, you'll see it there in your worship folder, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife, garments of skin and clothed them, even though that is describing extraordinary kindness and mercy on the part of God to cover the guilty, there's still verse 24, right? The story doesn't end at verse 21. Why? Because sin has consequences. Genesis 3, verse 24, he drove out the man At the end of the garden, excuse me, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. But Genesis 3.24 is not the end of the story. 
I want you to know that God desires us to return home. He wants us to come back into the garden, and so he has made a way. Now look again at the assurance of pardon in your worship folder from Ephesians 2. Paul says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that is outside, that is separated or alienated, have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. (laughs) Jesus doesn't climb the wall and say, follow me, come on up. Help each other out. Do that whole thing where, you know, you step into each other's hands and fling each other up over. He doesn't do that. The, bro- the wall that's broken in half is broken in his flesh. He breaks the wall by being broken. Jesus doesn't sneak in behind the curtain in the temple when no one's looking, right? Not some, su- some a secret passageway or steal the key from the priest while he's sleeping, His death on the cross tears the curtain right down the middle and opens the way to God for every man, woman, and child, Jew, Gentile, slave, free. The writer of the book of Hebrews says it this way, we can only enter into God's presence by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. The curtain tears in two, Because Jesus' body was torn in two. You see the connection here? Paul is connecting the wall with Jesus' body. He's connecting the curtain with Jesus' flesh. Jesus' sacrifice, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, outside the camp, outside the city gates, he experienced the fullness of being cut off, separated, alienated from his Father's presence so that you and I could be brought in and secured. Jesus experienced the ultimate exile from the Father, that is, hell itself, so that we could come to him and have a relationship with him as we were created and designed to have. But I'll go even further than that. Jesus doesn't find a secret passageway back into the garden and thus avoid or bypass the sword guarding the tree of life. He's not like Indiana Jones who would always get to the treasure by outsmarting the ancient death traps that he would go through, right? Those of you that have seen those movies, you know what I'm talking about. Jesus doesn't do that. The only way to open the path to the tree was for him to take the sword. He walks under it and stops. He takes the sword in the center of his chest, and as the sword broke his body, the sword broke itself. Jesus absorbed the threat of the sword. His death killed death and restored unfettered access to the tree, the symbol of unending life in all of its fullness and bliss. And when you are united to him by faith, you get the tree of life. You get a taste of the world to come. A taste. You get, it's, it's already, you're getting already some of that taste, but you're not yet getting the full course, if you will. You get a taste of the better country of Hebrews 11. See, at the end of the story, at the end of the story of the Bible, that is, it's fascinating, the, the Bible. One of the, you know, it's still the, 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 the most uh, top-selling book in the history of the world. don't know if you know that. But it is. 
And the reason is because it's so well put together. That's because God put it together. But, you know, the beginning of it is in a garden with this tree. And the end of it is in a garden, a city with a tree. Revelation 22. At the end of the story, the tree of life resurfaces. You don't really see it except in Genesis 3 and all the way to the end. But only this time, (laughs) this is the best part, there's no flaming sword or cherubim guarding it. All those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb have access to the healing leaves of the tree which sits on the banks of the river that flows through the new Jerusalem. And so the end of the story is a world untainted by sin where endless life is the norm but only for those who are found in Christ Jesus. The hymn writer Augustus Toplady wrote these words, The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. It is Jesus' obedience to take the sword and his resulting blood from that mortal wound that washes sin away and grants me access to God and frees me from having to reach anymore. I have life in and through Jesus Christ. In the end, there's only two destinations for every human being. And so, as I began, I want to leave you with, yes, you guessed it, C.S. Lewis. He says it this way. And in the end, this, this is it. There's only two places that you can be. Lewis says, we can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. On the other hand, we can be called in, welcomed, received, acknowledged. We walk every day on the razor edge between these two incredible possibilities. Apparently, then, our lifelong nostalgia Our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. The only way you get healed of that ache The only way that you get healed of your reaching and your wandering and your longing uh, is to come underneath the one who went underneath the sword for you. So let's pray and ask that Jesus would give us courage to come to him, faith to continue to walk as we wander, and that he would return. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you. We marvel that you would willingly walk under the sword and ask it to come down on you right into the center of your chest uh, for those who had willingly exiled themselves. We marvel at that, that while we were yet your enemies, while we were still sinners, you died for us. Uh, And we pray that that truth and the the, the resulting freedom that comes, that we will in the future get the, the, the full course of the heavenly better country that we will in the future get to take of the leaves of the tree of life. But even now we get a taste of that because of your work. And we pray that, 
that that would in turn produce in us lives of beautiful works, of obedience, that you would free us to stop reaching. And that as we wander in this world, as we are resident aliens, so to speak, you'd give us faith, you'd increase our faith, you'd encourage us in the wilderness, and that we would indeed live with a longing for the future hope that is ours and that heavenly country that is to come. We pray uh, that we tell others about that heavenly country, that they too might come might come underneath the one who fell under the sword for all whose faith and hope are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name for his sake. Amen. Uh, The promise of this benediction is as you go, uh, you're going into the wilderness, make no mistake. Uh, We're not into the new heavens and new earth yet. So I'm sure you're all thinking of things as you go from here, you've got to deal with situations, whatever it might be. But as you go out into the wilderness, reminded that you're in exile, go with the blessing of God over your life, the promise that as you go from here, he goes with you. uh, And that he has, by his spirit, equipped you to carry out the work he's given to you, whatever the situation may be. So go with his blessing, go with his benediction over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.